0: Welcome back, movie friends, to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Leo. And I'm James. And today is episode 27. We'll be doing prison movies, specifically Shawshank Redemption, Shutter Island, and Escape from Alcatraz. We really love these prison movies. They're some of our favorites. Shawshank is globally, universally loved by by audiences. We all know that. Um, so we're really excited to get this video, this episode done right now. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one. If you like our podcast and our content and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is share our podcast, either the YouTube channel or audio versions on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're growing mostly word of mouth, so please let your friends and family know about this show. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already. Hit the notification bell. Leave a comment if you want. Leaving a five-star review really helps us get seen by on, on these other podcast apps, so definitely please do that, especially the five-star reviews, they're written out. Those are the best when you write a couple sentences or wherever. We also have a Patreon now, so if you want to help support us monthly, you can check us out there. We have different tiers of membership, and depending on the tier you choose, you get special perks like a special message from us, a video message from us, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. immortalized forever. Some good perks right there. All oh, right, man. That was, a, that was a whole lot of stuff you to say. Good job. Let's get started on this episode. Spoilers are abound, everybody. And we're going to start with the infamous Shawshank Redemption, which was written and directed in 1994 by Frank Darabont, and based on the short story and book by Stephen King. This film is about Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, who was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in prison for the murders of his wife and her lover, and is sentenced to a very tough prison of Shawshank. However, only Andy knows he didn't commit the crimes. While there, he forms a friendship with Red, played by Morgan Freeman, and exper- experiences brutality of prison life, adapts, helps the warden, and eventually finds his way out. You could probably call this the greatest directorial debut ever for Frank Darabont. I mean, I can't think of another a better first film for a filmmaker than this movie. Yeah, Darabont's also known for uh, The Green Mile, which coincidentally is also... A prison story written by Stephen King adapted into a movie. Yeah. And also, he developed The Walking Dead TV show. Yeah, so he's he's mostly known, uh, and he did The Mist as well, another Stephen King film. So I think he only bought the rights to this story for $1,000 from his friend Stephen King. With Stephen King, since he's so rich, like crazy rich, like $500 million rich, <laughs> he's obviously a very prolific writer. He has tons of novels, but he also has a huge catalog of short stories. And he has this deal with any up and coming filmmakers who want to adapt a short story of his if they're if they like have the right mindset and attitude he sells them the the story rights to that short story for $1 and Frank Darabont did this with one of uh, Stephen King's short stories he wrote a really nice letter to Stephen King and adapted one of Stephen King's shorts into a short film and he and Stephen King sold him the rights for $1 and Stephen King liked the short film so much that he gave Darabont the rights to Shawshank for only a thousand dollars. Yeah, and I believe the original title of the novella is actually called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Mm. Which, if you understand, if you've seen the movie, you get that. Uh, this film was nominated for seven Oscars and didn't win a single one. 1994 was a great year for movies. We had. Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Little Woman, Quiz Show. So it's a tough year to compete in. That's a really good year. But I can't believe this movie didn't win a single award because it's arguably not only the best prison film probably ever made, but possibly the most universally loved film of all time. It's number one on IMDb's user top rated movies list at 9.2 above Godfather 1, Godfather 2, The Dark Knight, and 12 Angry Men. Those five movies make the top five. Yeah, I think that when you ask people what their favorite movie is, this is probably the number one choice that I hear from people, Shawshank Redemption. And it's all kinds of people. It can be men, women, young, old. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I know every one of my friends, they put this at the top of their list of favorite movies or up there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, the funny thing about this, written by Stephen King, it's not a horror movie in the sense of like demons, supernatural powers, monsters or anything like that. But instead, the monsters of this film are decades of time the guards, and the warden. Those are the monsters of this film, and the monsters of this Stephen King nightmare. Yeah, this, there's a lot of brutal aspects to this film, especially in regards to how the inmates are treated by the guards, and sometimes it's so bad that even the inmates who are criminals, even they are disturbed by what they see sometimes, especially when those new inmates walk in with Andy among them, and that, that large man gets beat to death by the, by the guard, just for crying and making too much noise. Like, even the the veteran convicts who have been there for so long, even they were like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Mm-hmm. So it's a disturbing place, and, and it, there's a lot of uh, really brutal moments in this film. And although it's brutal, it's beautifully shot. Roger Dinkins was the cinematographer on this film. Uh, I think he this was his first Oscar nomination, right? The very first one. Then it took him until Blade Runner 2049 to win. Yeah, which is insane because he's a freaking rock star. Mm. Let's get into the movie, starting with Andy Dufresne. This is Tim Robbins' most iconic role. He's great in movies like Mystic River, um, but this is the Tim Robbins' role. He's perfect as Andy Dufresne as like an intelligent, mostly uh, uninteresting guy until his imprisonment, really. He's very soft-spoken. Um, at first, again, he's kind of boring, which is one of the reasons why his wife cheats on him, the way he treats her. Throughout the first half of the, half of the film, it seems like he could have done it it, the first time you watch this movie, um, mm-hmm. he seems like also like a weak man who gave in to sin, and like Red says when he's first walking into prison, Red goes, "It looked like a stiff breeze could blow him over." Actually, let me do a Morgan Freeman voice. It "Looked like a stiff breeze would blow him over." But that was not <laughs> that Morgan Freeman was, at all. That was that like was really bad. That, was, that was like a hillbilly. It "Looked like a stiff breeze <laughs> could pull, blow him over." Yeah, but just like Red, the audience also we misjudge Andy too. Because Red ends up losing two packs of cigarettes for betting on him to being the inmate who cracks the first night. Yeah, so Red's first impression of Andy is that he's he's meek and he's naive and he seems like a weak person with a uh, little character. But it ends up being the opposite. And Red even says that Andy Dufresne that night never even made a sound. So he's very strong in character. And I think the, the number one scene, the first scene where we really get a uh, look at Andy's true character is when him and the other guys have the rooftop duty with the paint and the tar. And uh, there's that evil guard, Hadley, who um, Andy ends up helping with his taxes with the uh, bonus for his wife to save the $35,000 from the IRS. Mm -hmm. He wins the respect of his fellow inmates because the fact that Andy asks for beer as a reward for doing those taxes and doing that job for the guard, Hadley, despite the fact that he quit drinking, says more about his character than anything because he's a completely selfless person he wants to help out his friends and he wants to make his friends feel good rather than himself feeling good everyone in, in shawshank is hopeless they've been there for a long time and they don't see any way out and their lives have become bleak and they forgot what it's like to live and they've kind of lost their humanity in a lot of ways and so that scene where he barters to get the his friends beer to get his friends beers as an example of andy bringing normalcy to the prison in some way And he does so in a couple other ways So the first way is when he gets the beers For his friends And then the second way he show, he brings normalcy Is when he plays that Vinyl record of the Italian opera And he blasts it on The prison loudspeakers and he locks himself In the warden's office And this is him Again just trying to bring a, a Moment of normal life into the prison That has become so inhumane And foreign to humanity that he just wants to give the inmates a moment to be like, to to remember what life is. You know what I mean? And then the third way I think that he brings normalcy to everyone's lives is when he builds a library for everyone because that gives the people the ability to, to absorb culture, read books, listen to music, read a magazine. So in a few ways throughout the film, he brings normalcy to the inmates' lives. And those last two acts are actually kind of connected to when Andy spends six years writing a letter a week to the state to get funding for his library expansion project. And at first, it's not when he builds the full-size library. This is when he first gets a couple of crates of books and, like, what is it, $200 to start up the library, which is yeah. obviously isn't a lot. But this is, again where he gets the funding, he's going through these records, and, and he starts to play that record after he locks the guard in the bathroom. You, in, your, in your head, you're like, Andy, what are you doing? You just like made good with the guards. You made good with all the inmates. You, you're doing so well. You got well. all the stuff shipped in. But he again, it's just like this kind of reckless behavior for him that's almost like childlike that he can't help it. Mm-hmm. In, in order for him, he's bringing, like you said, culture to the inmates, and for him, in order for him to feel like a human being again, he has to do these ridiculous acts of... Um, Against the system of rule breaking. So I think he does this. I think he he breaks the rules from time to time because He's trying to take control back in in his life. So he goes through he takes various risks throughout the film That's an example of a risk he takes because he risks he risks being put in the hole just to play that one song he also risks being thrown off the roof by Hadley when he first gives them the financial advice he's like hanging him over the roof so he risks his life he knows that hadley will attack him just for trying to start a conversation with him but he takes, takes the risk because if he can help him out maybe hadley can return the favor and then obviously he takes the biggest risk of all by trying to escape the prison and so by taking these risks andy his is finding ways to take control back in his life because no one in the prison has control of, of their lives anymore They do what the prison tells them to do, and they live each and every day the same way. They follow the rules, and they stay in line. But Andy is the only one in the prison who is actually trying to constantly keep his life under his control in some way. And so taking these risks is how he does it. And I like Andy a lot because I'm sure to the other inmates at first, obviously he's a new inmate, so he doesn't have much going on, but he eventually kind of becomes a rock star to the rest of the guys because his character... Reaches the highest heights basically anyone ever did at Shawshank Prison. Or pretty much any prison you can think of. With the library and all the things. in like the beer situation. So he's just done so many things for his fellow inmates. But also he's reached the lowest lows you can reach at a prison. Especially with the two months in solitary confinement that he has to do with, deal with at the end of the film. And um, Andy finally throughout the film admits that he killed his wife by not pulling the trigger. But because of the way he treated her. Which again, yes, we don't... Fully know if Andy killed his wife. They never really admit it. It's ambiguous. Of course, Tommy has that story where he shared a cell with someone who has an exact story of murdering two people at the golf club, at a golf club, which is a coincidence or possibly the exact story of Andy's wife and Andy's lover. But again, he never shows it. They never show it, but I love the opening of this film. It's perfect because within three minutes, we get a sense not only of Andy's character, but why he's in prison. We see the the trial at the stand, and they cross cut that with his actions on the night of his wife's murder, and up until that point, it looks very convincing that he's the guy who did it because he has the gun, he's got the bullets, he's drunk, his fingerprints are on the bullets on the ground, his fingerprints are on the bottle of liquor on the ground, and he was there, The, the tire tracks from his car, so... Even throughout, even at the end of the movie, it's still ambiguous whether he did it or not. Mm-hmm. I think it's up to the audience to decide for themselves what he did. No, yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about it that way, but it is very ambiguous. And I guess it depends on your interpretation of Andy and how you feel of him as a character. I personally think that he was wrongly convicted, um, but it can go either way. But I like how you talked. You just mentioned how it wasn't. He wasn't always on top of the world in the prison. In a rock star in the prison especially so in his first two years in the prison because he, he went through so much destruction that he fell into despair through his repeated uh, rapes that he, at the hands of uh, that group of guys, the sisters. The sisters. So for the two, for the first two years of his imprisonment, he was breaking down and it was going to get to the point where maybe he wouldn't make it through this, but from that chance encounter of being able to draw his name into the, the tarring uh, project, that led to him offering advice to um, Hadley, and that led to him gaining power in the prison by having the guards protect him. And yep. that protection is what helps him uh, blossom in the prison. Yeah, because Hadley, once uh, he gets out of the hole, cause Hadley and the sisters brutally attack Andy, and uh, Andy's in the infirmary for for a month, and this is where once the leader of the sisters comes out of the hole, Hadley beats him within an inch of his life and makes him paralyzed and he leaves the prison. So that also, we think as the audience viewer that that's the reason why Andy's kind of changed moods and taken a a turn for the better, which I'm sure is a part of it. But then, like you said with etching his name on the wall, we don't realize at the time what this means because the most genius thing that this film does is they mask Andy's ambition of escape the entire film, not once does he mention anything like a plan or a scheme to Red or any of his friends. In the 19 years he's in prison, but he only plans the escape for 17 years. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even think to plan an escape until he gets that rock hammer for Red, which is just going to be for, for a project for uh, making little sculptures out of stones. Mm-hmm. But that's when, like you said, he begins to carve his name in the wall, and he carves in the A, and then we cut to see the rest of his life in the rest of the movie. It's revealed later on that he scratches off a chunk of cement off the wall. Mm-hmm. And they hide this throughout the whole film because now Andy realizes, I can get out of here. I can escape. It's going to take a very long time. And that that's obviously why he takes a turn for the better in addition to the sisters being gone. And that's what make, makes this movie so great on its first viewing and then makes it a different experience on the second viewing because when you watch this film for the first time, when Andy is gone from his cell, it is probably one of the biggest twists in cinema history. Andy just disappearing. And because like you said, they never showed any kind of instance or hints, not even a small Easter egg of Andy planning an escape. The only thing that you could have possibly garnered from it was the rock hammer, which he eventually uses to, to carve his sculptures. So you, you think it's an innocent tool that he's using. And so it's an unbelievable twist the first time you watch this movie. Yeah. And really the point where you can tell his, his face and mood changes is when the first time he goes to Red during the movie playing in the little movie theater, mm. he goes up behind Red, and Andy is giddy. He's, he's very excited. so excited. Yeah. He's just glowing with with what's to come, and that's when he asks Red for Rita Hayworth and and he's just he looks like the happiest person in prison because this is when he's found out he can hide the wall the hole in the wall with a giant poster and again this is an immense payoff the first time you watch this movie even the 10th time you watch this movie it's still a payoff because when a filmmaker effectively hides the protagonist's true intentions until the end of the film like in Shawshank it's a glory it's the payoff is as glorious as Andy's escape at the end of the film and instead of because we think he's going to hang himself really They find an empty cell. It's amazing. Exactly. And what separates Andy from everyone else in the prison is that he never loses hope. Even though he was wrongly convicted for this crime, and even though he's serving back-to-back life sentences, he never loses his hope. Everyone else in that prison, all the inmates, eventually fall into despair and completely lose hope. And even when he has that conversation with Red, talking about hope and how it's an important thing to have in your life red rejects hope he doesn't have hope in his life and he even calls andy's idea of hope uh, idea of having hope a shitty pipe dream which is a really cool foreshadow to the end of the film with andy's escape because he literally crawls through shitty pipes to escape the prison yeah and that that conversation about hope is brought about from music because this is when Andy gets out of his first week in the in the hole from playing the music out loud. Mm-hmm. He's talking to the other inmates about music and he, how he had Mozart and Beethoven to keep him company while in solitary confinement. He's explaining, he's like, he's, you guys have never felt like that about music before. And that's when he get, starts talking about hope, which is the main theme of this film. And the reason why they can't relate to him in that moment is because they've been there for so long. They've lost their hope. And so, but after Andy builds the library and they're all able to, for the first time in a long time listen to music read books again there's that shot of haywood and he's listening to Hank williams and he's singing and he's like feeling alive for the first time and probably for decades because he's listening to music that he loves which he never has been able to do in in, in this in, inside this prison and so andy never lost that idea of what life what defines living and so he's bringing it back to them to making them remember i want to briefly talk about rocks for a second because in the beginning of Andy's sentence in prison, he's collecting stones in the yard to carve into objects. It's his, it's his hobby. He's got the, the rock polishing blanket that the warden asks him about. He has the rock hammer. And when he's in the infirmary, his friends collect rocks for him as a welcome back present. Then in the second half of the film, what we don't realize, he's depositing stones into the yard to mask his work digging the hole into his wall. So I think that rocks play like an important metaphor for Andy in this film. What does he say? Geology is about. It's about time and time, pressure. Time and pressure, and that's exactly what he's dealing with. He's dealing with time and dealing with the, the, the emotional pressure of being in prison. Yeah. So it's a perfect metaphor for it. Just like the concrete, all it, just like the concrete, all it took was time and pressure. Digging that hole, all it took was time and pressure. Exactly. Let me ask you first. Why do you think this film is so important to so many people? I mean, it's such a beloved film. Why do you think this film in particular? I think two reasons. I think one is we really get to emotionally connect with the characters, especially Andy and Red. You know, they have a great uh, friendship that we've all had friendships like that. It's almost like a romance between two men, uh, platonically, obviously. But it's almost like a love story between these two guys throughout the film. And also... I think we can all relate to Andy in some way or some time of our lives where we've kind of been just so down in the dumps, so down on our luck. We didn't really do much wrong to get into a bad situation, but we have to claw and climb our way out of it to get back on top or just to find some semblance of our life back. So that's how I feel, but in it, I'll, 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 I'll articulate it in a different way. I think that every person to some extent in a certain way, find themselves trapped within their own prison, not a physical prison, but a prison within them. This prison could be anything. It could be you're stuck in a in a difficult and abusive relationship. You're stuck in a job that you you hate. You're the child of abusive parents. you you fail to achieve your main goal in life. Maybe there's like a, a really destructive vice that you have that you can't quit. And so these are all prisons that we build in our own lives and that, we're, that we find ourselves stuck in. And I think I've been in my own prison before in my life, and I think everyone at some point in their lives finds themselves trapped in a prison. And a lot of people don't realize, but you can escape your prison just like Andy escaping Shawshank. But the only, the only way you'll get out of the, your prison is through patience, discipline, and hope. And that's how Andy achieves his goal. He's very patient, he's very disciplined, and he never loses hope. Even if you're stuck in a prison, you can make anything happen and and achieve anything with time, discipline, hard work, sacrifice, and hope. A lot of people connect to that idea that no matter where you are, you can make anything happen with the right tools. Yeah, and so Andy comes out that, that final time in the hole, the two months he does in the hole for his behavior... A different man. And then, again, he says that iconic line that's repeated throughout the film. Get busy living or get busy dying. And he's changed. He's talking different to Red. And Red understands it. And that's when, eventually, that's the night he escapes. But I want to talk about Red for a little bit. Because, again, Morgan fucking Freeman, man. Morgan Freeman's performance in this role is, in my opinion, it's the heart of the film. And his voice over acts like the glue to hold everything together because his his character is so integral to telling this story because Andy, especially with the, the escape plan, keeps most of his thoughts to himself. He doesn't tell the audience about it. He hides everything from the audience, whereas Red's narration informs us of everything going on. In terms of the narration, the reason why Red is narrating this film in the way he does is because as Darabont was shooting this film, every weekend he would watch Goodfellas and he mirrored the stru- story structure and narration style on the story and narration in Goodfellas. And I think this was also the first film that Morgan Freeman ever did a voiceover on, which I obviously has led to who knows how many projects he's done voiceovers on. He's probably done every single credit card company out there. <laughs> every time you turn on TV, you hear Morgan Freeman voice every hour at least 10 times. How, much, is, how much money has that man made from voiceovers? Just from his voiceovers. And I think in the first time they recorded the voiceover, it took like 40 minutes. They did it just in one time. But uh, when they went back to check the the audio, there's like a loud hiss and hum on it. So they redid it. And it took uh, the second time, it took three weeks to do. Yeah, but was it even maybe it wasn't even that good. It probably I was doing it in forty minutes. I mean, but, come on. But I think they were using it on set to like playback while they were doing the films and stuff. Hmm. Interesting. While they were filming and everything. But just like Andy, Red changes throughout the course of the film, and it's it's pretty clear. We get a really good sense of his character from his first and second parole hearings compared to his last parole hearing. So he has a parole hearing every ten years, and this kind of marks uh, basically Red's life in prison as well as Andy's life in prison. The first parole hearing of Red that we see, he's been in jail for 20 years, and um, in that very first hearing at the beginning of the film, we see that Red seems like kind of hopelessly optimistic. He's clearly just saying what the board thinks they want to hear, and um, he does it again in the second parole hearing, but then as soon as he leaves the, the, the hearing, he's kind of just like back to being his prison personality and his real persona. And then in his final parole hearing, Red speaks from the heart because he doesn't care anymore if he's released or not. His best friend's gone. He's been there for 40 years. Red spent more time of his life in prison than out of jail. And he ends his his little monologue with, I just don't care anymore or I just don't give a shit. Yeah, so in the first two parole meetings, he didn't really mean what he was saying. He was, like you said, he was telling them what he thought they wanted to hear. And he was even using... The word um, rehabilitated. He was even using the word rehabilitated, which he honestly doesn't truly understand. He just thinks it's a word that they invented. And he's using that word in his first two. And he's just kind of playing it by the numbers and saying things that he doesn't really feel. But then on the third one, like you said, he went through his transformation. He's finally being honest and true to himself. And he doesn't care what these people think anymore. He thinks it's all bullshit What he All he cares about is that He knows that he's changed He knows he's a better man Inside And it doesn't matter what these people think It doesn't matter what they stamp on his piece of paper Because he knows deep down in his heart That he's a good man now And he's changed So fuck them I think the main reason why he went through his transformation Because he didn't transform for f- the first 40 years But he went through this transformation because of Andy Andy Is how... Red gained his humanity back through Andy's friendship and then seeing Andy's hope and then watching him succeed because of his hope changed Red and transformed him into a person who has changed inside into a different person. And despite still being in prison and not knowing if he's going to get off on parole, he still has hope now because his friend escaped and his friend kind of like Gave him a clue to come find him and mm-hmm. gave him that thing to look for in those those fields and something under the volcanic rock. So he has something to live for still. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why, and deep down, I think despite having hope, he's fine with not being being able to let, get let out. Yeah. And this prison is full of dark grays and bleak colors and monochromes and the saturated blues, but... Usually when something interesting happens, we see color like the beers on the roof we were talking about, with the sunset. library, the sunsets, the the taxes with the guards, when Andy's doing the taxes for the other guards from the other prison there in their softball attire. So it's it's a fun aesthetic because whenever something exciting is happening on camera, it looks very exciting and really like makes you sit up for a second and realize that something really magical is happening right now. Yeah, and exciting for prison because Life in prison is so mundane and redundant. You don't even see... you don't The audience isn't even aware of how much time is passing by in scenes. Because it's not as though they're putting down text saying year 10 or year 15. We don't know how much time is passing by. We can tell that their hairs are getting a little grayer here and there. Um, but there are only a couple of moments where characters mention how long they've been there there's a scene where andy mentions that he's been here for six years from writing the letters for six years and then there's obviously the parole hearings with with red but other than that we're totally unawares of how long andy has been here because that puts us into the shoes of what it's like to be an inmate in there for so long because since the inmates aren't doing anything at all they're not accomplishing anything they're not driving towards something all they are is following the rules every day just sort of living day in day out with the monotony of prison life and that blends time together it makes weeks turn into years turn into decades before you even know it because you haven't done anything you haven't accomplished anything so so time kind of melts together and the audience feels that as well from being unawares of how how far along into uh the prison sentence we are with andy We'll get that similar vibe and emotion in uh, Alcatraz when we talk about that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. I just want to briefly go over the warden, who is one of the most evil characters you'll ever see in a movie. Great villain. And ironically, he's very religious and almost, and even more evil, despite being so religious. And the, the warden is incredibly arrogant. He's consumed by his power. He believes in only discipline in the Bible. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me, is the first thing he says to the inmates. And uh, the way he treats everybody is is like trash like scum of the earth despite preaching the word of the Bible and because every prisoner in Shawshank when they enter the prison they get a Bible for all of his devotion to Jesus Christ and Christianity the warden is probably the least Christian person in the entire story and he's an absolute contradiction because he's a he becomes a criminal he, he loves brutality in harsh discipline and he eventually commits suicide which is a mortal sin. So he is a complete contradiction to what he believes. And he's also a very insecure man. For example, when Andy gives him a mild insult, he 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 says to the Warren, "How can you be so obtuse?" And the Warren is so offended by this that he locks him in the hole and i think maybe that the warden probably didn't even understand what that kind of what the word meant as an insult the word obtuse and so i think that's why after the month is up the warden goes into the hole to talk to andy and so after he threatens andy to work for him he says or am i being too obtuse so he throws the word back in andy's face showing that the warden was incredibly insulted by this this word that andy used on him yeah, and i think he knows he's such an evil man he's so corrupt that He uses religion in the Bible to kind of balance out his actions to maybe think that maybe, maybe this will save me despite being such a bad person, despite being so harsh to my inmates, despite stealing money, money fraud, forcing people to work for me for free, being such a horrible person. If I just proclaim the word of the Bible, I'll be saved and I'll be okay. Through his actions, this film highlights a problem that happened throughout American history with prison systems is... Prisons would employ their own inmates like they did in this film to carry out intense manual labor for communities for all kinds of uh, contracting jobs. And essentially it was slave labor because the inmates weren't paid. And then the prison owners were able to underbid on their contracts. So they beat out all the other contractors because the other contractors had to pay normal wages to employees. And so they always got the contracts. And then the prison owners just bagged all the money for themselves because they weren't paying wages to inmates. So it was a very corrupt system that prison owners used to uh, abusive means in order to gain huge amounts of profit, just like the warden in this, in this film. And I want to talk about one more thing before we get to the escape is Brooks' suicide is one of the hardest parts of the film to watch. And Red says in the film, if you stay in the prison long enough, the walls begin to get too familiar. Red also says early in the film, at first you hate the walls, and then after time, you begin to depend on them. It's pretty intense stuff. So what happens to Brooks, it happens to a lot of inmates in prison still today who spend vast majority of their life inside prison is they can't cope with the real world. They can't cope with the changes that have happened. They can't cope with the freedom. They're used to being told what to do. They're used to having all of their food and everything provided for them. They're used to the discipline. They're used to the routine. Even some of them gain power inside the prison. You know, they have they have a role to play. And then they come out of prison at, if having some social status in prison, whatever that was, is gone. It disappears. Now they're at the bottom, the very bottom of any social circle, any job. And it's tough, and especially with someone like Brooks, he's, he's an old man, and he's lived his entire life basically in prison. And he comes out, and he sees all the cars moving around, he's like, the world went and got itself into a big hurry. And so Brooks commits suicide, which is a very emotional scene because he was a— very nice man throughout the entire film you come to really like him as a character and it's just really a heartbreaking situation and brooks's mindset and fate is contrasted with reds in a really brilliant way by Darabot and roger deakins by two shots so if you look at the shots of brooks being released and then red being released they're filmed in very specific ways that show this this fate, this fatalism they have. So when Brooks leaves the prison, the camera is leading him, and the prison is behind him, and he walks towards the camera, exits the iron bar gate, and then they close the gate. and he stand, So he's a free man now, and he's standing outside of the prison, but the prison bars are still enveloping him, his image, right behind him. So he's surrounded by the bars still, so he's not free. Even though he's a free man... In his mind and in his heart, he's not free. He's actually in a new prison. Whereas when Red is freed from prison, the camera follows from behind him as he walks out of the prison doors and the prison gates, and he passes through the bars, and we pass through the bars with him, and then when he's standing outside the prison walls, there's no bars behind him. He's a free man, and now he is going to live his life because he's ready to live his life, and there's no more prison for him. And these two amazing shots foreshadow their paths and their fates throughout the film amazing shots good stuff guy good stuff all right and then we all know the amazing ending of when the jail opens up in the morning and they go check his cell and Andy's not there and behind the poster of he's got a new a new woman on top of his wall is a giant hole and we realize the shot of the camera pulling in through the tunnel hole to show how deep that hole was and how much time it must have taken Andy to get through that is absolutely absurd. It blows my mind every time I see it. It's like eight feet long of straight cement that he chiseled away with a tiny rock hammer. And if he was put in any other cell, he wouldn't have been able to do it. Exactly. It's because he's all the way at the end. Yeah. And so Andy's plan was very simple, but all it took was a lot of time and a lot of patience, like we said. And Andy's plan went like this. So first of all, he slowly dug that tunnel through the prison wall for 17 years. And then he also leveraged his financial advice to obtain special privileges from the guard and the, the guards and the warden for, for specifically for having his own private cell without another inmate, which no one else had. This gave him the ability to dig the hole and then having access to the warden's office because he was doing the warden's papers and his books. <clears throat> and then he also created that new identity, for the warden's fraudulent money scheme, which Andy ended up stealing after he escaped, and he assumed the identity of this fictional person that he created through paperwork. And then the last part of the plan was stealing the warden's shoes and clothes. How often do you look at a man's shoes? <laughs> <laughs> It's genius. It's a genius plan, yeah, and he brings, yeah. he brings, he puts it all in a bag. He uses the soap to uh, get rid of the trail from the dogs, and he escapes. And he goes down to Mexico, and Red finds him. And then when Red gets out of prison too, and you're following him on on his path, and you're worried that maybe he'll he'll fall into what Brooks went through, and then you know end up like Brooks. And he's looking through the window at the guns, and he's just thinking about a way to break his parole. But really, he gets the compass because you know what his best friend made. A, he made a promise to his best friend. He's going to keep his word, and he goes to that town. And he finds the volcanic rock on that little rock wall uh, uh, <laughs> along the wall of the big oak. And then he goes and finds his best friend in Mexico. And it's just really, again, satisfying as hell ending. Yeah, Red did that because he had hope back. Red, and Brooks didn't have hope anymore. Andy instilled hope within Red, and that's what brought him on that path. It's a really beautiful movie. It's really amazing. And I totally understand why this is number one IMDb. I actually got asked by a, asked by a fan, like, Some random question, like if aliens were on Mars, from Mars came to Earth, and you had one movie to give them to see about humanity, what movie would you give them? I said, I'd give them Shawshank Redemption. It's not my favorite movie of all time. It's not even in my top 10. But again, this is what people choose as their number one movie. It's universally loved. Number one IMDb movie rating, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. So this film only made $18 million on its initial release. So it was a huge box office bomb. But then they released it again after it got the Oscar nominations, but it still only made $10 million. So it made $28 million on its box office run, which is nothing. So it was a huge, huge fail for for the studio. But the following year, it became the highest selling rental in all of America. It made tons of money. Just from rentals from like Blockbuster and Tower Records. And annually, I still think this movie gets like 200 hours of playtime on television, which is absurd for a movie. Yeah. Especially a movie that's 26 years old. Yeah. But also, I think one of the reasons why it failed at the box office is because of The Shawshank Redemption. the The Shawshank Redemption was released widely on the same day as Pulp Fiction. Let's move on to Shutter Island. Oh, man. Directed by Martin Scorsese in 2010. Script written by Leda Calagridis. Based on the novel by Dennis Lee who's well known for writing stories based in Massachusetts or New England, like Gone Baby Gone and Mystic River. Shutter Island is about the implausible escape of a murderer, which brings U.S. Marshal Teddy Daniels, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and his new partner Mark Ruffalo, to Ashcliff Hospital, a fortress-like insane asylum located on a remote, windswept island. The woman appears to have vanished from a locked room, and there are hints of terrible deeds committed within the hospital walls. As the investigation deepens, Teddy realizes he will have to confront his own dark fears if he hopes to make it off the island alive. Now, this isn't a traditional prison movie. They're not in an actual prison, but we felt that since every inmate at the institution committed crimes of some nature that's why they're there so we felt that it fit the bill to put it in this episode also it, it takes place in high security again there are prison rooms in like the high pri- yeah, there are the cells. high security cells yeah it's a fortress like insane asylum and yes it's not technically a prison but this also involves people who are imprisoned by their minds. Yeah, exactly. So it's a different form of prison. In our perspective, it counts as a prison. Movie. And we want to talk about it, so we're going to talk about it. Yeah. So you know, what, if you if you know what, if you can't handle Shutter Island being our prison movie, let's you get a fucking shut this off. <laughs> no, keep listening, please. <laughs> please listen and leave a five star review. <laughs> Anyways, so ultimately, I think the main theme of this movie is sometimes we can blind ourselves to the truths of the world in order to believe what we want to believe. Because it can be less painful than the truth. Yeah. It's also coming to grips with your, your sin and your, your mistakes and your reality mm-hmm. and not hiding from your past and accepting your past. And this is a truly terrific film. I think it's underrated. And Mariska says he's cataloged because, again, he's made so many goddamn movies. Oh, absolutely. But this, I feel like people don't even think of in his top five in... It also has one of the most shocking twist endings you'll ever see. If you've never read the book and never seen the movie, yeah. this movie has a crazy twist. So if you've not seen this movie, I really suggest pausing right now, <laughs> go and watch Shutter Island, and then come back come back and listen to our review we'll, ASAP. We'll give you two hours to pause. Because we're going to spoil some goddamn fucking shit, all right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think, obviously, like you said, I also think this is a vastly underrated movie for Scorsese and also one of DiCaprio's best performances And this is one of my favorite collaborations between them out of their five or six movies they've made. Um, It's such a great psychological thriller. It has a lot of horror to it. And it keeps you guessing the whole time. You're on edge the whole time, especially the first time you watch it. And Scorsese used so many incredibly smart directing techniques. To keep the audience at the edge, on the edge of their seats. Yeah, this is a, a like Martin Scorsese uses a lot of uh, effects and green screen nowadays. Like especially with uh, Wolf of Wall Street, he used a ton of green screen for that movie. Mm. But this film is full of special effect shots. I think there's over 600 or 650 special effects shots. Oh yeah. And um, these shots are Scorsese used to give specific sequences like a dreamlike quality and like a fantastical element. Rather than special effects are generally used to make you believe that something's real. Like believe that, you know, Iron Man's really flying through the sky. They want it to look real. He's not? (laughs) (laughs) Whereas Scorsese with this film uses his special effects to make it seem not real at times. Exactly, because Teddy hallucinates... And in order to make hallucinations, they have to be pretty fantastical looking. Yes, says he wanted to create this artificiality to help put us in the mind of Teddy. Like, there's lots of shots where the background looks, like, way too fake to be real. Um, sometimes the the audio isn't perfectly in sync with some of the audio because it shows, like, how Teddy is interpreting people's dialogue. Um yeah, the sound mixing also, There sometimes things are way louder than they should be or not loud enough, like waves might be too loud than what they look like or the rain droplets, there isn't enough. There's just a couple sounds like leaking faucets rather than a bunch of pouring drops everywhere. So he messes with your head like that to put you again in the shoes of Teddy. And ultimately, the reason for this is because Teddy is an unreliable protagonist. So Teddy is played, of course, by Leo DiCaprio, and this is a fantastic role by him of course he's terrific in everything he does and we immediately get a sense of what you just said like being a flawed character the opening scene of teddy looking in the mirror on the ship and puking and to me teddy does this because he looks at himself in the mirror it's not because of of seasickness it's because when he sees himself he can't take who he is he can't take his reality because of what he's done in his past and this is what forced him to vomit That's a good good point. I I can see that. I see him getting seasick as, because throughout the film, we see that he is an intense and severe aversion towards water, where he can't stand it. We'll reveal why, but water is an incredible burden on him. Being around it, seeing it, having it fall on him through rain or or shower, it's an extremely painful experience for him. Yeah, so Teddy is a U.S. Marshal, again, who is investigating this missing murder from from uh, Ashcliff Asylum. And um, he becomes highly suspicious of a possibly nefarious behavior at Sutter Island during his investigation with him and his partner, Chuck. He begins to question the guards, the nurses, even Dr. Collie, played by the amazing Ben Kingsley. And Teddy personally becomes connected to the asylum, where he finds out that the man who killed his wife and kids in a fire is is prisoner at Shutter Island, Andrew Ladis. Conspiracy riddles Teddy's mind as he soon finds himself on the run from the staff and he attempts to expose their supposed lies and conspiracy. Yeah, so Andrew Latis, we learn from Teddy, burned down his home. He's a, He's a convicted arsonist who killed Teddy's family through burning their house down. And also, Scorsese turns us against the hospital immediately. Just... Like Teddy, we get he puts us right into per- Teddy's perspective towards the hospital because and he does this really simply. It's just filmmaking, very intimidating uh, framing of his cameras, especially when we're on the island for the first time and approaching the confines of the institution. And while he's doing these in- incredibly framed shots, he uses this incredibly menacing, disturbing, frightening score by Penderecki, which. Makes it feel as though the pr- the hospital is an evil place, and then then Teddy even says to Chuck, as they're being driven over, he sees the barbed wire on t- atop the walls surrounding the hospital, and he says, "I've seen something like this before," and he's referring to the Nazi prison camp that he saw when he was in the war. So he's already he's comparing the mental institution to a prison camp, and so by doing this, he makes the audience feel like this is a place that's evil that has Um, Bad things happening within it. So we've already been turned against this hospital immediately thanks to Scorsese. And there are little clues that show that Teddy isn't actually who he thinks he is. That Teddy is actually Andrew Latus. Teddy never lights his own cigarettes. Usually Chuck lights his own cigarettes or someone else. The headaches and sickness that Teddy constantly feels only get relieved when he's giving pain relievers because... This insinuates that Teddy is actually having intense withdrawals from his prescribed medication. And although to a first-time viewer it looks as though he's being medicated in a malicious way by the doctors who don't want him finding out more information, it's because, again, he's having withdrawals. And actually, and a fun thing also to look at is Teddy's actually similar to Cobb in Inception because he's plagued with the trauma of his past and he's living in a, fa- in a fantasy reality, a fantasy world in order to distract himself From his memories, both coincidentally played by Leo DiCaprio. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, what we eventually find out by the end of the film, the big twist, we have to talk about it because you can't talk about the movie without talking about this. The hospital, led by Dr. Cawley and with assistance from Dr. Sheehan, who is actually Chuck, have established this very elaborate role-playing situation in order to help Teddy come to terms with the fact that he's actually Andrew Latis. And the reason why Teddy is a patient in the hospital is because he murdered his wife after he found out that his wife drowned their three children. And so he created the persona of Teddy, the US Marshal, in order to not deal with the reality of the, the tragedy of his life. He believes that by allowing Teddy to live out this role play, he can emotionally and personally get through to Teddy to make him see who he really is. And who is Andrew. Yeah. And the story and the film and the book are designed to fool the audience into not seeing this twist ending. That Teddy is actually Andrew Laeus. And that he, and that he's not part of this elaborate scheme to attempt his renewed mental health. But really, you start to believe with Teddy throughout the film that he's really in this conspiracy. That he really finds Rachel in a cave on the side of the island. And all this stuff. And it's a really amazing Job by Scorsese and by Dennis Lehane basically to just trick the reader and trick the audience member. Yeah, and it's amazing because, like you just said, you're you're right there with Teddy and you believe him. But there are actually several very small hints and Easter eggs planted throughout the film which prove that Teddy is actually Andrew Latis. I made a list. So when they first get to the island, Chuck struggles to take out his gun from its holster when the guards ask them for them because no guns are allowed on the premises. And so he's so bad he can't take the gun out of the holster, he ends up just taking the entire holster off his belt and hands it to the guard. And even Teddy looks at him in a strange way, because a U.S. Marshal would be able to take their gun out of their holster, no problem. And then the second time is that as they're walking onto the property of the hospital, there's that inmate that waves at Teddy in particular, and then there's another inmate that looks at Teddy and does that, that shush sign, so the inmates seem to recognize Teddy. He doesn't know that they recognize him, but they definitely do cuz he's an inmate there. And then during the search for Rachel, the entire staff is the entire staff of uh, of guards are looking through the island, but during the search they aren't even doing anything. They're all just kind of sitting around on the cliffs, not putting any effort into searching for for Rachel or a dead body because they know that Rachel doesn't exist that Andrew latest Teddy made her up and it's part of the role play so they're they're like what are we doing I'm not doing I'm not gonna look for a body that doesn't exist and then during the interview with the patients Teddy goes through a series of interviews to try and figure out clues there's um the older woman and they're talking and then she asks Chuck for a glass of water and Chuck comes over with a glass of water and hands it to her and then the the camera cuts to a close-up of her And she lifts her hand up and there's no glass in her hand. And then it cuts to an over-the-shoulder shot and she puts the glass down. The glass is in her hand now and it's empty. And so, for some reason, the glass disappeared. But the reason why the glass disappeared is because Teddy has a serious aversion towards water because of the death of his kids who were drowned in water... And so he doesn't he he can't be near water and he can't stand water. And so the glass disappears because he makes it disappear because he mentally blocks water from his mind whenever he can. And then when Teddy mentions Dr. Sheehan to this woman, she glances for a moment at Chuck because she knows that Chuck is actually Dr. Sheehan. And then she gets very nervous when he when when Teddy asks about Andrew Latus because she knows that Teddy is Andrew Latis and he's also a prison an inmate at the hospital. And then on the next patient, the guy, Teddy starts scratching the paper with the pencil in a very annoying and, and extreme way because he knows that that patient can't stand something like that kind of noise. Otherwise, how would Teddy know to make that scratching noise with the pencil? So he already knows the the inmate so well because he's also a patient that he knows that that would drive the, that patient crazy. George Noyce tells Teddy to his face that this is all a game. This is all for him. And that also... And that he's not investigating anything. And that Teddy is actually the person who beat Noyce up. That's why he's all bruised and battered. Throughout this film, we get a lot of glimpses at two specific elements. Water and fire. In this film, as we were talking earlier, you mentioned water represents the truth. It represents reality. While fire represents the lies that Teddy tells himself. So when we see Teddy near fire... Um, he's seeing what he wants to see Not what's actually there Like where he's in the fire in the office um, When he has hallucinations of The fire of the house burning down That his wife's in Which didn't actually really happen That's just the story that he that he created um, Remember when when Teddy supposedly Finds the real Rachel In the cave on the side of the of the island um, She has a fire To shelter her from the hurricane and, and also in those shots Of the close-ups There's fire in the frame each time These were all hallucinations that he convinced himself were real. And right after he lights a match, his wife appears in Noyce's cell. And another example is when he blows up the doctor's car. There's a large plume of fire, and he has the hallucination of his wife and his daughter. And the fact that Teddy's wife died in a fire when actually it was Latest who killed his wife. And again, fire represents the lies that Teddy tells to himself. And water, again, symbolizes the truth, his reality. Teddy is really Andrew Latus and refuses to believe that he was capable of killing his wife because, of course, like we said earlier, she drowned their children in water, which is the truth. Water is the truth. And whenever he starts to feel water on him like when he's under the the, the dripping water ironically in the shower in the shower and ironically he's completely surrounded by water on this little island so he's he's surrounded by his reality and his truth but he refuses just to look at it he refuses to even see it that's a great point and then there's the symbolism is so amazing and like you said in that shot when he's holding dolores from behind or it's an iconic shot in this movie and she turns to ashes in his hands, and then she just dissolves. And then the apartment, the house is burning around all around him. If you look closely at the shot, water is dripping out of his hands. So it's like he's letting the he's letting the truth slip away, and he's letting the 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 hallucination and the fat in the and the fantasy take over. Obviously, it can seem a little extreme to see that a character that a person would invent a whole person to not deal with something, but Teddy, we learn actually has a history of not dealing with serious issues in his life and we show we learned this through dr. Colley later in the film that after the war when Teddy came home he became an alcoholic and he drank too much and he drank to not deal with his problems and Dolores his wife showed really serious signs of having mental illness and mental disturbances and he ignored every warning sign there was and there was even a moment where she told him that she, he, she had bugs crawling inside her head. And rather than deal with it, he decided to avoid the problem and the situation and he, instead of taking to seek help, he moved the family to a rural area isolated into a, in a home because he thought that getting away from the city would, would do the trick. And so he's always avoided dealing with the serious issues in his life and then creating this entire role play of Teddy is just an, an, a next step up from that. And aesthetically, Teddy's false reality is uh, is usually desaturated. You know, when he's at the asylum, everything's just bleak and gray and grim. And then whereas his reality and his memories are usually very saturated, overly saturated uh, to the extent it's very colorful and real, and just is a counter to the desaturation of his of his false reality. There's also this really interesting thing about his flashbacks to the Nazi prison camp. So, Teddy's memories in the Nazi prison camp are flashed throughout the film. And in that small story, we see that he and his fellow soldiers invaded prison camp. All the Jews have, have already been killed and they're frozen in the snow. And then they find, then there's the the, the scene where Teddy walks into the office of the SS officer, who's already been shot in the face, and he's dying on the ground, and the officer is reaching for his gun. During the scene, there's, a, there's music playing. It's a, it's a Mahler composition. That same song is playing in Kali's room in the, in the hospital. Now, what's very interesting about this composer is that Mahler was a Jewish composer, now, Jewish music and art was completely banned and outlawed by the Nazis. So it makes no sense why a Nazi SS officer would be listening to Mahler in a prison camp in his office. And on top of that, Mahler, this song by Mahler in the movie is a quartet. And in real life, Mahler never finished a quartet composition. So th- that song actually doesn't even exist in real life. So begs the question, is that even a real memory of... Or is that also an invention of Andrew Latest's mind? And so Teddy goes throughout this whole conspiracy scheme of of trying to escape and trying to reveal and and blow up this conspiracy, but they reveal to him that this has all just been an elaborate game to try to coax his mind into reality, to accept what's going on and what's happened to, into his past. And this is where he finally comes to terms with who he is and who he was and what happened in his past. And there's that emotional scene with the, the fake gun, and then he, he passes out, in Dr. Collie's office under this giant kind of spotlight. This lighting is just this giant circle of spotlight, which kind of represents that he's finally seen the light, he's finally come to for the time being. Yeah. And then and then we learn Dr. Collie explains that they've done this before. And Teddy has come through before as Andrew Ladison and accepted his past, but then he fell back into the role play of Teddy Daniels. So they're trying this one last time. And Kali, the whole film, we think he's a villainous character who can't be trusted. But then we learn that nobody cares about Andrew more than Kali. And he's doing everything he can to save his life. Because what's going to have to happen now is that he's going to have to get a lobotomy. If this doesn't work, he has to get a lobotomy, which means he'll be turned into virtually a vegetable for the rest of his life. And that brings to point an actual topic that was heavily debated during this time in America with how to treat psychiatric patients so traditional doctors they believe many of them believe that extremely violent and aggressive patients who never took to their treatments they viewed them as kind of less than human and as incurable and so they were always in favor of lobotomizing their patients because it would make them docile and easier to manage and control because they deemed them unworthy of even being given proper treatment because they didn't think it would ever work. Whereas, And that's char- that is represented in the character of Max von Sydow. So he doesn't believe in this role-play thing that Kali is doing. He believes in lobotomy. And so that's who Collie's trying to save Andrew from, that doctor right there. Whereas Kali represents a newer wave, a progressive wave of psychiatrists who believe that using creative methods and using care and dignity and love In respect, they could get better results from their patients with time and with effort. And if you don't know, lobotomy is an old form of psychosurgery that involves severing connections to the brain's frontal cortex. And so it used to just basically, again, turn you into a virtual vegetable. Yeah. So a few of those patients, when they first arrive, those patients have been lobotomized. They're kind of like robots. They just can do simple tasks and they can't really think or speak for themselves. And then Teddy kind of has to come to grips, if he doesn't, with who he is as Andrew Latest And But then he, Andrew says that infamous line, which would be worse, to live as a monster or to die as a good man? So what do you think that means? To me, every time I've seen the movie and when I read the book, to me, Teddy knows he's Andrew. And, and he doesn't want to live in this world anymore because he's a dangerous person. He's dangerous to himself. And I think he just wants it all to end and he wants to just at least live out his days not hurting anybody anymore because he hurts a lot of people in this movie and it's something that is a, a recurring occurrence because he's probably the most dangerous patient at the at the hospital. And so I think that Andrew or pretends that he's Teddy to go to his meeting in the lighthouse but really he knows he's Andrew and he's accepting this fate. I agree with you because Collie says that he wishes he could let Andrew live out this fantasy as Teddy, but he can't because he's so dangerous to the other inmates, to the guards, and to himself. He's the most violent prisoner they have there. And so I totally agree. I think that that last line means that as Andrew Latus he's a good man. And so he'd rather die as a good man, as Andrew Latus than live as Teddy, a monster. So I, told, I agree. I think that he chooses to get lobotomized. But again, it's an ambiguous thing, and, and there's really no wrong answer. It goes yeah. either way. But it's a great ending, and what, what a great line, man! It's, yeah. it's fantastic. What a twist, too. The first time you see this, it fucking knocks you on your ass, yeah, big time. Why hear something crazy? Yeah, absolutely. So Mark Ruffalo's character Chuck, his last name is All A U L E, and so he's Chuck All, which sounds like chuckle, oh, yeah. which means he's a jokester or a prankster or a trickster. Yeah. He also won the role of Chuck after sending Martin Scorsese a, a fan letter saying how much he wanted to work with him. <laughs> and the movie also um, had a 40 million opening weekend take in the U.S. market, which marked a career best for Martin Scorsese, and went on to gross 239 293 million worldwide, making it his highest grossing movie in his career until Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, this was a huge hit because Scorsese movies never earned a lot in the box office; they always made a ton with uh, VHS and DVD sales. But with this movie. I think DiCaprio brings a lot of star power to any movie he's in, which is why he can ask for so much money himself. Um, his movies do nothing but make money. So I think having DiCaprio on helped solidify its status as a box office hit. The actual title of the movie, Shutter Island, is an anagram. It makes two anagrams. So it, it can make truths and lies, and then it can also make truths, denials, which are the main some of the main themes of the movie. Oh, yeah. Alright, on to our final film of the episode, Escape from Alcatraz, directed by Don Siegel in 1979, written by Richard Tuggle, based on the book by Jay Campbell Bruce, and this is also based on a real story, real events. It follows Frank Morris, played by Clint Eastwood, who is a hardened con with a history of prison breaks, is sent to serve out the rest of his life sentence in Alcatraz, America's most brutal and notorious Inescapable maximum security prison. Morris quickly realizes the prison's dehumanizing effects and clashes with it with its cruel warden. Fed up with life at Alcatraz, Morris and two convict brothers meticulously plan the unthinkable, an escape from the island. So Alcatraz is an island, it was basically a fortress in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um and this is in the 60s. I think it's 1966 when this happened. Real story, real events. Frank Morris and these two brothers really escaped from this prison, and we don't know if they made it or not. <laughs> so Alcatraz, it was not a normal prison. It, like the warden says, this is the prison where you go to if you cause trouble in a normal prison. It's kind of like Azkaban in Harry Potter. It's like the worst prison in America. And the reason why Frank is there is because he's escaped several other prisons in the past, And he was brought to Alcatraz because he's escaped several prisons in his past. And this is one of my favorite Clint Eastwood movie roles. Uh, It set the bar for prison films, too. I think this is the first prison movie I I ever watched. Yeah, I think me, too. And there'd be no Shawshank Redemption without... Escape from Alcatraz. Clint Eastwood is perfect as Frank Morris. He even kind of looks like the guy. They have the same like squinty eyes, scowl. They're both very stoic, seem deep in thought, tough guys. Like we'll put up f- photos of them up by to each next to each other, spitting images of each other. Could be brothers. Clint's a man's man. Yeah, and, and in along with uh, Sergio Leone's Fistful of Dollars trilogy were the main directors who created that like tough guy, anti-hero persona of Clint Eastwood in the 60s and 70s. This also has one of the coolest movie posters I've ever seen of all time. Oh, it's, it's like great. Clint like with his little piece of metal and like a, a piece of, of rock coming out. It's just like in a little his face is out of a hole in the yeah. wall. And like we were talking about earlier with um this being the worst prison in America and one of the most tourist in the world, it's nicknamed the rock because that's really all it is. It's just a rock. And his his new friend, the librarian prisoner English he has that great line where he says this is the rock they don't want you doing anything here but time so they don't even have like activities or any way of improving yourself in the prison they just want you to sit there and do the time and there are obviously similarities between this and Shawshank that I'm sure inspired Shawshank like the inmate with the rat he feeds who we see like similar with Brooks in the the crow that he feeds the little maggot Um, The men enter Alcatraz and Shawshank in similarly terrifying ways. In Shawshank, the alarm sounds and the other inmates clap and cheer and basically terrify the new prisoners as they come rolling in in a a line. While in Alcatraz, thunder and lightning welcome the new prisoners in this prison, making it feel truly like the last place on earth you want to be. In contrast to Andy Dufresne, we never deal with Frank's past. We don't learn about him really. We just know that he's a hardened convict. Um, he's not like Questioning his guilt He's not trying to convince people that he's innocent Or anything like that We just assume he's just a convict and he knows it And he knows he's a, he's a guilty man He's simply an inmate with a history of escapes And he has no past really He's got really no identity besides being in prison And also, which is much different from Shawshank They both involve escaping prison But just like in, in Shawshank We don't see Andy's plan It just happens, he just disappears one day In Alcatraz you see every step that Frank Morris takes to escape the prison So you're there with him, carrying out the plan and the job with him And unlike Andy also, Frank has clearly been in prison and in jail most of his life He he knows the ins and outs, he's constantly cool and stoic He kind of seems like he could fight anybody and be okay and hold his own He knows how to play the system, he knows what friends to make, he knows what enemies to make how to get the attention of the warden, and also to kind of like keep a rapport and low profile with the guards, which he does very effectively all those things. He's extremely smart and adept at taking advantage of situations. In that first meeting he has with the warden, he steals a, a fingernail clipper right, right in front of the warden. He has a great side of hand. He also steals a spoon from the kitchen when he asks to replace his spoon. So he's he has these amazing sleight of hand tricks that he uses to his advantage. And also in that meeting with the with the warden, we see a, a quick shot of Frank Morris's file in the warden's hand. It's just a quick little insert, and it says I can't remember the exact wording, but it says extremely high IQ or something like that, like an un- unusually high IQ. So Frank, even though he's, he's a, a long time criminal, he's very intelligent and frank is sent to alcatraz because no one has ever escaped the rock which is a small which again is a small island in the san francisco bay and the thing with alcatraz even if you do escape even if you somehow get beyond the walls but you have to you have to swim to shore and it's a 1 mile swim but the tide makes it feel like 10 miles the water is so cold it'll turn your arms numb and you can't make it to shore in time with the interval changes between convict counts so you there's can't, 12 counts every day. Yeah, so you can't get out, and even if you do, you'll die anyways. So that's really the big problem that Frank has to solve. Yeah. And there's no voiceovers in this film. The characters generally say very little. The camera actually explains a lot. And the main theme is really to be free. And there's there's almost no music. The sounds of the prison are really what give the film that atmosphere and that ambiance, just people walking and shuffling and doing things. And that's what really creates the atmosphere of the movie. Yeah, and similar to Andy, F- Frank finds a way out within his own cell through the small grate on the on the bottom of the wall, which is a vent shaft. He discovers that the concrete has been eroding over time because it's a very uh, moisture rich environment, and. The walls are so old that he can easily chip away at the concrete, which he ends up doing over a long period of time. And then he even, he even builds a replica of that small piece of the wall with the grill of the vent in order to, uh, to cover the hole with. So he doesn't find anything like a poster to cover the wall with. He creates a paper mache identical copy of the wall. Yeah, so him, the two brothers, and also... Uh, Charlie Butts, who's his next-door cellmate, they're the ones who decide to do this plan together and escape it together. And they, they, like you said, they make those replica crates where they're chipping out the hole in the walls. They also prepare a raft. um, And they also create papier-mâché heads to put in their beds to make it seem like they're just sleeping. So this actually happened. They actually made these paper mache heads. They actually made these fake crates in the walls. And they actually built a raft to escape. But again, the question is, did they actually escape? We don't know. Or did they die and be washed up and drowned in the San Francisco Bay? So in the film, they allude to the fact that they did escape because Frank leaves that flower for the warden to find, which is significant in an earlier part of the film with the flower. And so... There's that shot where the warden tells uh, the cops to say that the men died in the water. But he knows they survived and he crushes the flower with his hand. So we know in the movie at least that Frank and the others survived and made it to shore. Yes, And then also in real life, because this was a big question, it was a big news story. But in real life, on that night, during the middle of the night, the Coast Guard reported seeing a boat moving across the ocean with its lights off. And th- but they never found it. And so there's, it's possible but that, that they com- somehow communicated with people on the outside to get a boat to them while they were in the middle of the water. And they actually tested this on Mythbusters, and I believe that they successfully made it across the shore in time. And to in the flower, it can signify that they made it ashore. Maybe Frank left that flower for the warden to find, or maybe it was just washed up in the water. But the, the flower is significant because it's a yellow chrysanthemum, which is basically what Doc's talisman was. And Doc is kind of similar to the character of Brooks in Shawshank Redemption. He's like a very old man who's been there for a long time. He's a great painter, and that's basically his one hobby in the, in the prison. But um, Doc's painting privileges are, are terminated by the warden and um, before humiliating himself. He passes that on to Morris because the one thing that was in his life that was still capable of making him happy has been taken from him painting. And then later on in the mess hall, the warden says something to Doc while they're in, we're eating. And Doc stands up and is going to say something back but has a heart attack and dies. So that flower could mean that Frank left that there for the warden to find on purpose to show that I made it. And this is this was for Doc. That's what I think for sure. There's I mean, work to do. In terms of, of, of comparing the Escape to Shawshank, I would say it's a little less exciting hmm. than Shawshank's Escape because that one's just so emotional and with the thunder and lightning and everything, and Andy's finally done it, and it's just so fantastical with the the pipe and everything. Not that the Escape in Alcatraz isn't great, but it's just, I think, a little less emotional, but it's still very interesting to watch. I think the reason for that is because they have different tones. Yeah. So in Shawshank, the Thomas Newman score is just amazing. And it's uplifting and it's inspiring. And then he gets out of the prison and he raises his arms and there's that iconic shot. And the music is just amazing. Whereas in Alcatraz, the music is very kind of like horror movie esque. It's very tense. Very simple music. I think it's very very synthy. Hardly any in it. Yeah. But it's it's very strange sound effects the composer used to elicit the tone. And the tone the tone of the escape is fear. And the, the the idea of them getting caught So I think it has very different tones So that's why it feels different Yeah, I, I think this is a near perfect movie If not a perfect movie And there are cons to it that some people find Like they think it's too slowly paced um, There's minimal dialogue And there's not a ton of emotional connection Between the inmates None of that like brotherly love That kind of we, we used to see We usually see in prison movies uh, that strong male bonding relationships. Like, I mean, similar to Andy and Red, Frank and English sort of form that bond uh, where where it's more out of respect than anything. Yeah. It's not like an emotional friendship like Andy and Red. But it also, I mean, it could be a little bit more realistic in that way for what prisons or uh, inmates are really like. Yeah, probably. A little less uh, uh, Hollywoodized, a little less dramatized. I think it works... But also, remember, this movie was made in the 70s. Different, Different style yeah. of filmmaking. And again, we get a similar warden kind of situation character like we see in a lot of prison movies where the warden is just, like, a horrible person because in order for, like, a prison movie to work, you kind of have to... You need a villain. You need to connect with the criminals who are the convicts and the inmates rather than the actual supposedly good people of, of the of the civilization and the culture, which you would think would be the guards... In the wardens, but the wardens turn out to be the worst people of all in prison. If you're making a movie like this, if the villains aren't going to be other inmates, it, pro- it works best if the people who have power in the hierarchy make good villains. And we understand, I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen Escape from Alcatraz before. If, if you haven't, we really recommend seeing this because, again, Shawshank is so universally loved. There are other great prison movies out there like Hunger... With Michael Fassbender, where he goes on a prison strike, hunger strike, in an Irish prison, which is based on a true story. Michael Fassbender, one of his early first big roles. And then Bronson with Tom Hardy, directed by Nicholas Winning Refn. Like There are phenomenal prison movies out there, and I'm sure we'll get to those at some point. But these are our three favorite. And if you haven't seen Escape from Alcatraz, definitely check it out. It's so good. It basically set the bar for prison, for escape movies. And Clint is the freaking man, still has it to this day. We love him so much. Yeah, this is one of his most iconic roles in movies. And it's a, a classic prison movie. It helped define the genre of prison movies. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's a good time. That's it for episode 27 of Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Before you shut down Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure to leave us a five-star review. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Facebook, you can find us everywhere. We're Just search us. You'll, we're everywhere. You'll, you'll, we're everywhere. Uh, thank you so much again. We appreciate it so much. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Bye. Bye.